From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thank you so much for being with us on this Wednesday. We are starting off talking about something that unfortunately has been in the news many times and that is incidents of trucks hitting overpasses in various parts of the province. We know the BC government has announced a suite of new penalties and regulations. These are all meant to crack down on those overpass strikes. That move came from Transportation Minister Rob Fleming who called it an inexplicable series of collisions. Take a listen to just a few of the calls that came into our sister station, AM 730, after one of the more recent overpass hits. Just hit an overpass and some of the steel girders have fallen off a truck and damaged some vehicles. Because of the damage done to one of the cars and one of the girders fell off the truck and laying in the other lane. I can't actually tell you what happened, but the road's blocked. We're not moving at all. Looks like a truck that the overpass. There's a piece of girder or whatever wedged underneath the, the overpass there, and there's also debris all over the place. The left-hand lane is blocked, and traffic is slowly getting around the accident, but it's going to be a while, and it looks like there's damage to the overpass. A lot going on, so don't come this way. All right, if you're just tuning in, that is not happening right now. Those were some of the callers to AM730 after one of the more recent crashes into an overpass. Again, we've heard from the Transportation Minister in BC saying there will be changes to BC's Motor Vehicle Act to make these overpass hits to hopefully cut down on those. However, we are also hearing from the United Truckers Association. That group has issued an urgent call to the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure to introduce a wide range safety review and joining me to talk more about what that would look like is Gagan Singh the spokesperson for the United Truckers Association thank you so much for being with us today Thanks for having me. Uh, we, we've seen so many of these in just the past few months, uh, the past year or so. Uh, what are you asking for from the Infrastructure and Transportation Minister? We are just asking at the moment uh, since we have seen severe penalties and still there is no way that these accidents are being stopped. So I think that's what we have decided since our expertise is only in container trucking for the truckers working at Port of Vancouver. But still we have to step up because these uh, accidents are, it's no ending things going on and on. So what we have suggested to the Minister of Transportation is a special training for the people who move uh, move and load. It's for drivers and for shippers too who load those trucks for the special training for the extra height and extra wide loads. Are people that are doing that, are they not getting that training now? No, there's no special training about, about these loads. There's no, no training at all. There's a general training for a trucker to get a license, but for these kind of loads, there needs to be a special training, special care for these loads. If, if BC government is, is forcing them on, that's a good thing, that they, they are encouraging them to apply for a permit. So, but the concern is that there is no education stuff going on. But when you're a trucker, you're driving a truck, do you not know 
the height of your load. And, and when you go through an overpass and when you approach an overpass, there are clear signs on those overpasses that say what the height clearance is. So is, is that not something that, that yeah, I, I get your call for more training, but is that not some basic information that all truckers, no matter what truck you're driving, that you should know? That's not a sufficient thing. Like they need to have a special, they need to have get this information from the shipper that what exactly it is. But the concern is that how to, if in case shipper is not able to provide some sort of height or some sort of other information, then what steps does they need to take it? And the same view, if the trucker is not willing to accept it, so that let's take an example of Chohan trucking. So does the shipper have got signed from the driver that he knows everything about the height of the load? No, there's not at all. And the only the blaming game is only towards the truckers. So which is not a truckers are responsible for those accidents, but you can't blame the trucker only for those accidents. And another thing to review is that does these kind of accidents happen in the United States, in Washington, just a close a few miles away from, from us? Does these kinds of accidents happen in Alberta? No, not at all, which means that we have, if we see the ground clearance, it's 4.15 meter clearance in British Columbia, in majority of that. If you compare this ground clearance of the bridges height all the way with Alberta, all the way with Washington, which is 12 inches lower than them. So that's why we are not saying to replace the infrastructure. We are saying the special training so that all of the parties may know so that all British Columbians may not feel uh, like some kind of endangered thing whenever they want to travel it. So that's an interesting point. So you're saying, though, in Alberta and Washington State, where we don't see uh, these types of overpass hits, certainly not in the numbers that we've seen here in B.C., it's actually a lower clearance? Yes, it's due to that. So why, what's, hap- what's different in Alberta or Washington State that, that they, the drivers aren't hitting the overpasses? They have higher clearance in over there than in B.C. That's why... So just just a simple scenario or a simple mathematics. So why these accidents are happening only in Lower Mainland? Right. So why are they? Because the, the ground clearance is lower than other provinces or other, other parts of the country. So do you think if that, that was changed, if the clearance was changed in B.C. and it was made the same as what we're seeing in other provinces and states, would that fix the problem? Yes, for sure. But still, the training is, needs to be mandatory because it's a, it's a kind of special training. I can, uh, in the layman's language, like a general physician is not able to do the heart surgery. Right. In order to do the heart surgery, you need to have a heart surgeon. So how a general doctor can do the heart surgery? It's not possible. Are there drivers then, and I think this is where things, and, and for people that, that don't know the ins and outs of the trucking industry and what goes into that, but I think it would come as a surprise to a lot of people to think that there are truck drivers out there, and I get what you're saying, that it's also the company, it's not only the drivers, but that there are drivers out there for whatever reason that are driving around with these giant trucks and they don't know the height of their load? Yes, it is. It's, it's a very common practice. And even though by height by itself, 
in our release, we clearly mentioned that if you travel across the south in the United States, they have, they have written the height of the bridge in, in feet, not in meters. So there's also a problem. And I think BC government needs to, needs to put on a science in the feet measurement too, as soon as possible. Because if you ask anyone, what's your height? They say five feet, X inches, six feet, X inches. Do they say meters? Not at all, as much. It was an interesting point, too, because even for people, if you have an SUV or you have a, a bigger vehicle with a roof rack or something like that, if you're going into parking lots in Metro Vancouver, it's not I, I, I might be mo both. I'm not sure. But I always look at the feet. It's certainly always uh, listed, whether it's six, four or six, seven, six, eight. So whatever yeah. it is, it's in feet. Uh, so do you think that would make a difference if the, that was also on overpasses? It'll make a huge impact, a huge impact on it. Should there not be some requirement, though, that if you're driving a truck, you know what your height is? Because if you don't know the height of your load, then even seeing the, the signs on overpasses, it's still a crapshoot whether you're going to get through or not. You're right. You're right. And I, and, I, and I think one good thing by BC government is that on the Drive BC website, they mention everything. Once you, once you mention your destination... Your place, you are leaving your height of the load. They they give the clear route and everything, but still the concern is that at end of the day, it's uh, the problem is about the training stuff. So why these accidents were not happening in the past? The concern is that those people were fully trained, and now at this moment there is a big lack of training. That's why if we see does it change in the BC roads in within last few years? No. It's the same roads. So then if, if whatever the change is coming, it's all about the drivers, the lack of training. So why did the training stop? There's no training at all. But you just said, but like you said, there used to be people, why we didn't see this happening in the past was because there was people, more training and now there's not. People in the past, companies trained them. Mm. And also they learned from, they learn slowly, slowly by each other. This is the problem. Because there's no, like, in previous times, people were more informative than nowadays in the trucking industry. With, with this call to the minister, BC's Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, to introduce uh, this safety review, uh, who should pay for the training, do you think? Or if there is a safety review done and there are some gaps, which I think we can all agree that there must be some gaps or we wouldn't be seeing this happening uh, over 30 times in the past two years. Who should pay for that? The companies? No, it, it should be the driver. I can give you the example. I, I, I used to drive in, in the container trucking industry, and that's a perfect example for your listeners too. In order, when we were supposed to pick up a dangerous good from the port, we have to get a certification from, from a company who provides the knowledge how to transport the dangerous goods. And that is good to go for two to three years. And that's only a, a, a one-time training in every three years. And that is still better than to pay the higher penalties. And that's better to, to get the life saved for the person by himself and for the other fellow people on the road. So what happened with the certification then? Is that still something that's required? 
Uh, yes, that's, that's still required for the people who are moving dangerous goods like chemicals and other stuff. So I'm saying that there need to be some sort of same kind of training for the people who are moving extra wide or extra height loads. That's what we are requesting to the province. Right. But again, going back, and I I don't mean to oversimplify this, but would it not make a huge difference? And whether it's the truck driver or the shipping company or whoever else is involved, you shouldn't be driving a, a truck of that size or any vehicle, really, if you don't know how tall, how big your load is. And if you if you don't know how tall it is, what business do you have being on the roads, not knowing if you're going to hit an overpass or not? Of course, that, that that's what we are saying about. That's why, again, we, we are re-emphasizing on the training, training and training. That doesn't mean that government have to train. But how much training do you need to measure a truck? Isn't that a simple mathematic equation? Your truck um, is this high. This is this is the route you can take. Don't go to these overpasses where you're going to slam into them. Yes, it's it's not a hard thing. But the problem is that if nothing is being resolved, so then something you need to have in into in place. Like the same government have bought a notion about for the taxi drivers, 20 years ago, taxi drivers was, were supposed to have a special training from the Justice Institute. And now it's not, because now everything is fine. So what's the hard thing about the training purposes? If training saves the people's life, then, then what's the endangered thing about that training? which costs just only maybe 100 bucks every two or three years or four years. Still, it's better. Yeah, no, I, and I agree with you. And I think most people, uh, if not everybody, would agree. Anything that can uh, stop this from happening and stop putting people in danger, including those drivers, uh, is certainly uh, a good thing. Uh, Gagan, we'll leave it there, but we will follow up with you, uh, I'm sure. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me and have a great day. It is 1234 on a Wednesday. That means it's time to check in with Claire Newell, the founder and president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon. Hi there, Joe. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New Year to everybody. It's yeah. the first show of my uh, of 2024, which is pretty crazy. Yes, and Happy New Year to you. I was just saying before the break, it feels like we haven't chatted just the, the two of us for, for weeks. So good to be back on track. Yeah, I think so as well. And um, there's just, it's, you know, it's the start of a new year and I've been looking and reading over things. And one of the things, I mean, it was all over global news uh, yesterday was the fact that Error Canada mm. had the worst on time performance. I actually wanted to start with that. Um, I wanted to kind of put it into perspective um, because an organization and it's an airline analytics company called Sirium puts out a report you and I actually chat about this from from time to time. They come out with reports monthly, um, but this was looking at all of 2023 and looking at the top 10 North American carriers, which WestJet and Air Canada are both part of. So the number one um, uh, airline in North America for on-time performance for 2023 was Delta. So if you actually want to find out um, which airline you know has the best stats? You could go and see this full report. The, the great thing about Delta, they were on time, which is basically within a 15-minute window, 84.5% of the time. 
That's amazing. Now, they do fly out of YVR. So, too, does Alaska Airlines, which was number two on the list with an 82.3%. So, of the top 10, unfortunately, Air Canada had that, you know, bad spot. Um, yeah. But to, to just to give you an idea, they were 63% of the time that uh, they were on time. So, they do have a lot of work to do, um, just so you know where WestJet came in, they came in seventh with 69% of their flights landing on time in 2023. Um, I should say, though, early in 2023, it was rough. There, It was just a mess for both Canadian airlines, and it has progressively gotten better. So I actually flew with Air Canada over the holidays myself. I was down in Scottsdale visiting my mom and dad with my whole, the whole Newell side of the family, and I was on time both ways with Air Canada, and so too were my brothers who left the day after I did. So um, they have come a long way. I think that 2024 is going to look better. But again, it's one of those situations you and I chatted about in 2023. It's not going to be a quick fix. There is staff shortages with airlines, airports, and with um, the navigation nav canada for the air traffic controllers and it's not really a quick fix we've been talking about it come coming to a better place come 2025 2026 and that's um, what iata the international air transport association is predicting as well all right so things will get better it would hard to hard to imagine things getting worse would never say never but that was not a great rating no it's not a great rating and and i think that it, it will absolutely improve i mean i I don't want to eat my words come the end of next year, but from where I sit compared to where we were last year, it it is looking very promising that things are getting significantly better. All right. That's a, a higher note there, a better note on that. Mm-hmm. This was a story you sent me, and I always shake my head at this, and I think you do too, but also good to see that the number of unruly passenger incidents is down. Yeah, it had to come down. I mean, it was just so awful during COVID. I mean, I think that the record high was in early 2021. People didn't want to wear masks. People were just miserable. And um, finally, that number is really starting to go down. 2023, there were considerably less incidents. Um, Unfortunately, it's still above pre-pandemic levels. So we still have some ways to go. Um, But I think that Given the fact that the airlines, the airports with their staff shortages has been, it's been tough in 2020 through this past year, um, I think it will improve just like the situation I was talking about with the on-time performance. It's, it will get better. Um, it's, it, I, I just want to share a stat with you though. Um, there were fines uh, of about, Maximum fines were up to 37000 per violation. Hmm. 22 passengers were handed over to the FBI for criminal prosecution. Um, and so I think that, you know, we have, a, we have some, some ways to go, but it's, it's going in the right direction, Joan. Going in the right direction. All right, that's also, <laughs> going in the right direction. also a, a good one there. All right, yeah. what else are we uh, talking about today? A new uh, resort opening for people who like Mexico. 
Oh, I wanted to just to share a list of some new oh. resorts. There's seven that are opening in Mexico in 2024. It's a real popular destination for Canadians, and a lot of people really love the new places. So I'll just quickly go through some of the ones that are opening in 2024. Um, early in 2024, there's going to be a new luxury resort in Cabo. It will be the Four Seasons Resort and Residence. Um, there will be a beachfront property called the Beachfront by the Fives Hotel, which will be an adults-only boutique resort in the Riviera Maya. The Park Hyatt will be opening a resort in Los Cabos. Gran Velas Boutique Los Cabos also. So Cabo is getting quite a few resorts. This um, resort it will be quite small. It's an adults-only and 79 suites at that Gran, Ve Gran Velas. I love those properties. They're very expensive, but very beautiful. Um, the Marriott Cancun Resort, they're actually redesigning there. They're just basically, it's not a brand new build, but they're really overhauling a resort in Cancun, um, a property called the SHA Mexico, which is really a wellness-centric resort. It will be in Costa Mujeres, Mexico. So that destination, you'd fly into Cancun and go north to the Costa Mujeres, is the Mujeres area. But if you like um, wellness experiences, yoga, meditation, hydrotherapy, that type of thing, this would be a property to look at. Again, it's SHA. And then um, another property on Isla Mujeres, again, that same, same, same kind of area north of Cancun. Um, there's a property called the Almer, which is part of Marriott's luxury uh, collection that's opening, again, adults only. So that's clearly the trend. A lot going to that adults only, but following the trends of um, wellness, uh, adults only, and um, some big renos as well. All right. Those all sound uh, beautiful, especially looking, well, it's not so bad today, but a lot of rain in the forecast. So those exactly. all sound very, very nice. Uh, some new routes as well, if people want to travel a little bit further. And uh, this is a Vancouver, Tokyo route. Yeah, this one was just announced. So this is a low cost carrier um, that is out of Japan. And it's actually a wholly owned subsidiary of Japan Airlines. Obviously, we had that terrible news yesterday about the Japan Airlines flight that was hit on the runway um, by that uh, the smaller aircraft. I, it was. I, I should just say, as a side note, it was just remarkable that you know over mm -hmm. 350 people got off that A350 Airbus within 90 seconds. That just is a testament to how the staff are trained and how orderly the people were on board that craft. So this is um, a new route between Vancouver and Tokyo by Zip Air, that um, subsidiary of Japan Airlines, and it's going to start on March 13th. So this will be um, a new to have a huge long-haul flight operated by a low-cost carrier business model. So the one-way standard prices are going to be $352, or just over $352 each way, Kids that are six and under will also have a, a lower rate, and that'll start at 156-ish and change. Um, but for the lay flats, the really gorgeous, you know, this because this is on a 787 Dreamliner, um, the lay flat business class will be just about $1,100 each way, which is a fraction of what that long haul business class is. Um, for for flights on on lay flat. So if, if Tokyo is on your on your radar, look to Zip Air as an option to get a better price. You will have to pay for all the extras. You know, if you want preferred boarding and, and you you want carry on bags and all of that kind of thing, they're working on that low cost business model. 
but a really good way to go. Really reasonable. All right. That uh, is it, Bear. Let's do uh, one more before we get to uh, the deals. And this is okay. something we've talked about. And the over-tourism as more and more people. It's great news that more and more people are flying. But again, some places seeing too many tourists. Yeah. Well, this announcement is in Venice. And we've had a lot of announcement that there will be fees starting this coming year of 2024, where you'll have to pay if you're not staying overnight or you're not going in for dinner or theater or or paying to, to do something in that city. So it will really target cruise ship visitors. But they're taking another step. Um, they are going, and this will have a lot of large tour companies scrambling because the city said it's going to ban loudspeakers and tourist groups of more than 25 people. So if you're on a coach, which a lot of coaches have, say 40 people, they'll likely have to divide you into two different groups to be able to tour that city. Some of the other things that will be prohibited will be stopping in the narrow streets. I mean, that is such a pain for the people who actually live there, as well as on those bridges or in passageways. So these new rules are set to begin in June. So if um, you are planning a guided vacation that hits Venice, there will be some changes to your trip likely. All right. Good to uh, keep in mind if people are uh, getting out and about. Oh, I need to touch on this. I promoted that we were going to talk about this as well. The TSA pre-check for anybody that's used that, you know how efficient it is. More airlines are joining it. Yeah, so this is great. TSA pre-check for those people who have Nexus or um, the Trusted Traveler Global Entry. You, If you use your Nexus card to actually check in, you may get a TSA pre-check on your boarding pass if the airline has that option. You have to use your Nexus, not your passport when you're do- at the check-in process online. But four new airlines are taking part. One of them is a Canadian airline, North Atlantic Airways, Starlux Airlines, Fiji Airways, which actually flies into Vancouver, and Canada's Lynx Air. So there are now 94 domestic and international carriers that are participating in TSA PreCheck. Huge bonus for those people who have Nexus um, because those TSA PreCheck lines are so much faster. You don't have to take anything out of your, your bag, not your liquids, electronics. You don't have to take your, your coat off. So it's a, a really great perk for people. And if more airlines, the better is my books. <laughs> All right. Let's see where people are going. What deals do you have today? Well, um, the first one I want to give is Hawaii. January and February are really, really popular dates, but I found some dates January 24th through until February the 8th, as well as at the end, February 27th and 28th, and early March dates, March 1st, 5th, or 6th, air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront hotel. For those who know it, Hilton Hawaiian Village, lots of people love that property, $12.99, the taxes of $3.75. There is a 10-night ultimate Caribbean cruise in a balcony cabin. It's been really popular because it includes the flight. It's March 24th, the airfare 10-night cruise. It's aboard Celebrity Silhouette, so a beautiful ship. It includes the transfers, $22.99, tax included for that 10-night. And then um, you and I, I don't know, what. Yeah, I don't think I got to ch- talk to you about it, but there was this deal to the Amazon and the Galapagos and the deal's been extended, but they can pull it at any time. It was so popular before the deadline, which was December 30th. They've extended it. I don't know how long it will stay, but between March 22nd and November 10th, so we have lots of time to plan this, it is an absolute steal. This is an unbelievable deal to see um, the Galapagos Islands. It includes the airfare international from Vancouver, 10-night guided vacation, All of the domestic flights, so from Quito to San Cristobal, San Cristobal to Guayaquil, and then back up to Canada. Your breakfast daily, sightseeing and transfers, 
$22.29 tax included. That is half the price it normally is. All right. Some great, great deals. Claire, great to chat with you as well. Thank you for this. And I'll talk to you again soon. Sounds great. Talk to you next week, Jill. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday. Well, this is a court ruling that is getting a lot of attention. And if we go back, this was legislation that was brought in by the province. It was called the Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act. It was passed by the legislature in November. And this was a law that allowed fines and imprisonment for refusal to comply with police orders not to consume drugs in places including parks, beaches, sports fields, near business entrances and bus stops. But the court ruling is, it's a court decision that now places a temporary injunction on that law. Chief Justice Christopher Hinkson ruling in favor of an application by the Harm Reduction Nurses Association and imposed the temporary injunction until March 31st, pending a constitutional challenge of the law, saying that irreparable harm will be caused if that law comes into force. Well, a top BC law enforcement official says that court decision takes away police enforcement tools. And joining me to talk more about that is Fiona Wilson, Deputy Chief Constable with the Vancouver Police Department, also President of the BC Association of Chiefs of Police. Deputy Chief Constable, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, good afternoon, Joe. What specific issues do you have with this injunction and what this court ruling does when it comes to enforcement? So just to be really clear, we respect the court's decision and certainly uh, respect uh, Chief Justice Hinkson's decision at the end of the day, um, although we are disappointed in it. Um, the act actually, although it had been passed, it didn't come into effect because it's set to come into effect through regulations that actually hadn't yet been introduced. So it's not so much that this takes away um, opportunities for police officers to deal with uh, problematic pu- public consumption, but rather it was anticipated that when the act came into a force through the regulations, that it would provide our officers with extra tools to deal with those rare situations where we come across someone who's using uh, in public in problematic circumstances. Is that really, is that a rare situation? So, you know, in my experience, and I, I was fortunate enough to do three tours of duty in the downtown east side in my 25-year career, I, I actually um, experienced that people who use drugs typically go out of their way to afford do, uh, avoid doing so in front of children. And um, so I would say that, you know, uh, it may not be rare for someone to use in a park, but I would say that it's, it's relatively rare, rare to find someone who's using openly in front of, uh, uh, in a park, for example, where kids are. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that, Uh, We need those tools. There's no question about it because there are those circumstances that arise. Um, And it's important for our police officers to be working um, on firm legal ground when they approach someone in those circumstances. And so certainly uh, we supported this act and believe that it is necessary to shore up some of the challenges we've had in the wake of decriminalization.
Because I think, uh, and even people listening uh, will, uh, if you've spent time in in and around Metro Vancouver in many areas, uh, it doesn't seem all that rare to see people uh, using, say, at bus stops or in parks, like mm-hmm. you said, may, hopefully not not in the thick of a playground or, or where children mm-hmm. are playing. But that mm-hmm. has come to light as well. And whether it's discarded needles or or other issues that people come mm-hmm. in contact with. But if, if it's not happening all that often, then doesn't that kind of question the the judge ruling in that saying that if this comes into place, there would be irreparable harm caused. So although it may not um, happen uh, overly frequently when it does happen, it's a significant concern to us as police uh, officers across the province, but obviously as well to members of our community. Um, And that's why the BCCP has strongly advocated for the for, for initially for Health Canada to add exceptions to their exemption, which certainly um, they did in mid-September of 2023, and then to go on to advocate to the province to add additional places um, that were exceptions where people would not be able to use because of the likelihood that children could be present, and those places include, you know, beaches, sports field, parks, outdoor rec areas, uh, bus stops for example. And so, um, you know, it's really concerning to us in those circumstances where someone is using illicit drugs. um, And under, as long as they're under the 2.5 gram threshold, in the absence of any other criminality, right now in those locations, if someone is using, there's really nothing the police can do. Right. Uh, Sorry, I was was just going to ask you that. What happens or what is the protocol then if somebody, a police officer comes across somebody maybe in one of those areas and Mm -hmm. and perhaps one of the more problematic ones, say a a park, a playground, Mm -hmm. uh, somewhere like that. What is the the protocol in in that case? So there is a distinction between a park and a playground because anything within 15 meters of any part of a playground structure is actually an exception to the exemption. So you are not able to use illicit drugs. And in a case like that, our police officers still have the authority to exercise um, their uh, authority under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act and arrest that person. However, if they're in a park, which is not an exception to the exemption, there's nothing our police officers can do in the absence of any other criminal behavior. Whereas if somebody, say, was was having a picnic or was sitting in a park that wasn't part of, a, a say, an alcohol pilot project and they were drinking alcohol, would an mm-hmm. officer be able to step in in that sense? Uh, if somebody was drinking alcohol in a park that was not part of the project, then an officer could certainly start step in. But um, in this, in that same circumstance, if the person was, for example, smoking crack cocaine, um, in a way that wasn't violating any kind of smoking laws or any other criminal behavior, there's nothing a police officer could do. And that's exactly what our concern is. Right, because that, that seems strange. So when you, when you put it that way, it, it does seem like, like something's a little bit wonky when it comes mm-hmm. to what the law actually says, what officers can do, and what's, what's best for people, both people mm-hmm. who are using public spaces and people who are using opioids or using different substances. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jill, that's why we've advocated so strongly for these extra provisions and why we supported the act in its current form. Because it, on one hand, you know, we felt that it wasn't overly um, uh, restrictive. And what I mean by that is 
the act didn't give us the ability to go and arrest someone who was, um, for example, uh, shooting drugs in uh, on a beach. What it gave us the authority to do was simply approach that person and ask them to leave. So no ticket, no going to jail, no criminal record, simply asking them to leave. If they refused to leave, that refusal became the offense. So I would say that the act actually struck a really good balance between the police not wanting to criminalize people by virtue of their drug use and instead direct them towards pathways of health, but also ensuring that those other people at the beach who may be there with their kids or their family and don't feel safe with somebody who is using illicit drugs right next to them can still call the police and we can action that. And, and move that person along. So I feel that the act actually struck a really good balance um, between those two sort of interests, um, our desire to keep people out of the criminal justice system simply by virtue of their drug use, but also taking care of the other members of our community who have real concerns, real legitimate concerns about people who are using in public spaces. Did that happen a lot, or do you know what uh, what a, an interaction like that looked like when an officer would go up to somebody and say, hey, uh, you know, this isn't criminal, we're not going to give you a ticket, or you're not going to face charges, but you need to take this activity and move elsewhere? Well, of course, the Act was never enforced because the Act comes into force through the regulations that didn't have a chance to be enacted. Um, so uh, in the past, what I can tell you, prior to decriminalization, when any sort of drug possession or, or public drug use was technically illegal, what would happen in a case like that is typically the police officer using their grounds under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act would approach that person and say, um, perhaps they would say immediately, you are under arrest for possession of a controlled substance. They would uh, talk to that person. Um, they may proceed uh, with a criminal charge. However, I can tell you that that was exceedingly rare. Um, you know, in Vancouver, I believe in 2021, we had something like five charges with respect to simple possession. What would more likely happen is the police officer would say, listen, you can't use here because uh, this is a public space and there's people around and it's making people uncomfortable and feel unsafe. You need to move along. And that's exactly what would happen. When decriminalization came into effect on January 31st of this year, our police officers lost the ability to do that if they didn't have reasonable grounds to believe that A, there was another other criminality going on, or B, the individual was in possession of illicit drugs over that 2.5 gram threshold. Right. And do, do you know, were there cases where, where an officer would, would look at it or would know it was over that threshold or that, that things that, uh, that, that somebody was to, asked to leave or, or faced possible charges for being over the threshold? We certainly had people uh, charged over the, who have been in possession of illicit drugs over the threshold. I don't have the exact number of that. Um, and of course, I'm you know, speaking for police across the province in my role as a president of the British Columbia Association of Chiefs of Police. Um, but I would say that um, you know, certainly there were circumstances, many, many circumstances, where we would historically simply ask people to leave because they were using in problem, problematic circumstances. So where does this leave everything now? Like you said, the actual mm -hmm. act hadn't been passed, hadn't come into mm -hmm. effect yet. There's now mm -hmm. this court injunction that says, mm -hmm. nope, this act cannot be imposed, uh, that, that this could cause irreparable harm. Where does this mm -hmm. leave everything? 
So that's a great question. Um, my hope is that the legal minds will get together and determine what needs to be done to uh, address uh, the Chief Justice's concerns in his decision prior to March 31st. But the reality is that my understanding is that there is an interlocutory injunction hearing that is going to be scheduled that will likely take place after March 31st. That is a much deeper dive into uh, the analysis of this act and could certainly spend significant uh, time in court. Uh, in fact, you know, we've got almost exactly two years left in the pilot project of this exemption, and it wouldn't surprise me if that court proceeding took at least those two years, which means the act would uh, unlikely to be uh, ever um, actually put into force. So, you know, I'm hoping that um, the province can um, sit down and go back to the drawing table and come up with some solutions that will give police the tools in this province to address um, situations of problematic consumption in public. And do you think, is this something that should be high up on the, on the priority list in that you mentioned you've worked in the downtown east side, you've certainly worked in the department and seen what's been mm -hmm. happening in and around mm -hmm. Vancouver. I mean, the, the, the bottom line of this is we're still losing six up to seven people a day through drug overdoses. Mm -hmm. we, we've decriminalized. There are calls for safe supply. People are still dying of this stuff mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. uh, is it right that we're focused on this right now or what else do we need to do? You know, I think that um, there's no question that this is a small piece of a very, very large puzzle. And that puzzle includes access to treatment on demand, increased health services, education, prevention services, harm reduction services, safe supply, prescription safe supply. Um, so there's many, many different facets of this that need to come into play in order for us to address the tragic circumstances uh, with respect to the opioid crisis that we're facing right now uh, and have been for many years, and it does not appear to be getting any better. However, it's also important from a policing perspective, you know, our job is public safety, and we have heard loud and clear from communities across this province that folks who want to go to the beach, who want to go to the park, um, who take their kids to sports fields and outdoor rec centers or rec areas, uh, don't feel safe when they come across somebody who is using illicit drugs in those public spaces. And we as police right now, as it stands, do not have the lawful authority to address those circumstances. So for us, from a policing perspective, it's really important for us to have some of those tools so that when we do come across those situations and we have reasonable grounds to believe that an individual is using illicit drugs in one of those locations, um, that we can adequately address it lawfully um, and in a reasonable way. Deputy Chief Constable Fiona Wilson, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Joe. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.